just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Welcome to Holy Smoke, The Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Christians are being persecuted around the world. That won't be news to you. From time to time, though not very often, a story crops up in the media, usually related to Islamist attacks in the Middle East. And if you're a Christian, you'll hear references to the persecuted church. It's one of those things we deplore but aren't very curious about. Many people in the West, I suspect most people, are unaware that Christians are now experiencing a global epidemic of persecution, perhaps an over-familiar word that actually includes the rape, murder and dismemberment of pregnant Christian women in Nigeria by Islamist thugs, the use of face recognition technology by the Chinese government to monitor, control and, where it deems necessary, eradicate Christian worship by demolishing thousands of churches, the evisceration of ancient Christian communities in the lands of the Bible, the brutal torture of Christians in North Korea, the burning of Christian villages by Hindu nationalists in India, and vicious attacks on Christians in Sri Lanka and Burma by Buddhists, egged on by bloodthirsty Buddhist monks. Yes, they do exist. And meanwhile, the Church of England builds helter-skelters and crazy golf courses in its cathedrals, while the Vatican is manoeuvred by Beijing into signing a concordat that legitimises China's government-run imitation of the Catholic Church. It's a scandalous situation, though to be fair to the Church of England, the new Bishop of Truro, Philip Mount Stephen, has just published a comprehensive report for the Foreign Office into the global phenomenon of the persecution of Christians, noting that Islam is far from the only culprit, and also acknowledging that government political correctness has encouraged the British authorities and governments generally to avert their eyes. Tellingly, he begins by quoting what William Wilberforce said to the House of Commons about the slave trade in 1791. You may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say you did not know. This episode of Holy Smoke is about the global persecution of Christians. I'm joined by a fearless campaigner on behalf of the suffering church and other religious minorities too. Father Bernard Keeley, founder of the charity Nazarene.org. And by fearless, I mean that he goes to places from where he's told he'll be lucky to return alive. He's a Catholic priest of the Ordinariate, a small but dynamic community of former Anglicans, but he's here today to talk about all Christians. Let's begin not with the obvious place, the Middle East, but with India, to emphasise the point that Christians are increasingly threatened by a wave of Asian nationalism. Father Ben, the news from India is horrifying, but we don't hear much about it, do we? Well, India is off the radar because we tend to focus on Islam, we tend to focus on the Middle East, we tend to focus on Africa. 
But the government, the BJP government in India of Modi, is aggressively Hindu nationalist, has been aggressively dealing with its Muslim citizens, but also Christian citizens. We tend to look at Hinduism as very peaceful, lots of lovely flowers and Ganesh and all these other little statues. But in fact, Hindu nationalism is as aggressive, as murderous in many ways, as Islamic, uh, not nationalism, Islamic fundamentalism. And that just does seem to pass people by. I was in, in America recently in a parish and uh, speaking about the persecuted. And um, there are two Indian priests on the staff of the parish, as there are in so many dioceses now. And both of the Indian priests were telling me stories of what's been going on in India, of, of, of murders and terrible things happening. Very, very quiet men, very gentle men. And none of the people in the parish had any clue. And I told the two priests, you need to speak about this so that people realize it isn't just Islam. No, it's in part the government of India. Remember, Modi, the, the prime minister, was refused a visa, wasn't he, several years ago? Before he was prime minister, he was refused a visa. It was, it was alleged that he was involved in the massacre of Muslims. And now he's prime minister. So we certainly don't have a, a kind and gentle Hindu leader in India. We have an aggressive nationalist. So all minorities, I suspect, have significant problems in India. They do. As you say, when Modi was governor of Gujarat, he, he was refused a visa by the US State Department, which bans anybody who's carried out at any time particularly severe violations of religious freedom. And that was referring to his role in communal riots in, in Gujarat, which claimed over 2,000 lives. Now, most of those were Muslims, but it's a creepy fact that there's been a marked increase in attacks against Christians since Narendra Modi came to power. His party has strong links with violent Hindu activist groups who perpetrate attacks against Christians, to the point where in one year it was estimated that churches were set fire to or pastors beaten up ten times a week. It's not just India, however, and not just Hinduism and Islam. Asia is generally experiencing a wave of religious nationalism, or in the case of China, anti-religious nationalism. Consider Sri Lanka, for example, where Buddhist monks are preaching terrifying hatred against Muslims and Christians, or Buddhist Burma, where Nobel Peace Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi, now one of the country's leaders, has done nothing to stop the ethnic cleansing of Muslim Rohingya. Incidentally, I was in Oxford the other day, visiting the Sheldonian Theatre, where they award degrees, and there's still a big photo of Suu Kyi picking up an honorary doctorate, though not one of her graduating from Oxford in 1967 with third-class honours. Her tacit support for genocide has merely tarnished her liberal reputation. It's not like she supported Brexit or anything. Her reputation is, shall we say, besmirched now. There's no doubt about it. It's that dangerous, heady mix of nationalism with religion and when the predominant religion of the state is used to identify, as it were, with the state. And so Buddhism being the religion of the state of Burma, it's in some bizarre, weird way, almost going back to, you could say, the time of the first Christians when their refusal to offer sacrifice to the emperor was seen as disloyalty to the state. And so almost in any country where Christians or, or even other religious minorities are the minority, unless they bow in some way to the state, then they're likely to at least be second-class citizens. 
It's the, it's the idea of the Islamic idea of dimitude. You are a second-class citizen. But think of the Copts of Egypt. They are second-class citizens. They've always been second-class citizens. So perhaps in Burma, it's the same thing. If you're not a Buddhist, then you are not really, in some way, a true Burmese citizen, perhaps. And in China, the religion is the state ideology, increasingly so. Worship of the party, its leader, and Chinese ethnic identity. The only religions tolerated are entirely controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. I was astonished to read an article recently by a Protestant pastor belonging to an entirely state-controlled church who said Jesus, if he were alive today, would be a member of the party and that allegiance to the party came before allegiance to Christ. I, I think China, and this is not obviously an original thought, but the spectre of China and its treatment of religious minorities, we're, we're moving into a really dangerous and dark world, a state which wants to control its citizens completely, watching them, as it were, day and night. Religion, especially we could say Christianity, authentic Christianity, is a real challenge to that state. And that's, I think, why the Chinese Communist Party is so aggressively trying to control the church. Absolutely. And that's why it has such special hatred for the Protestant charismatic congregations, which are springing up fast in China and can only be controlled up to a point by demolishing literally thousands of their churches. But even the official, or you might say bogus, Catholic and Protestant churches are being forced into ever greater subservience to the party. Our religious minorities are experiencing the same thing. Christians in China effectively have a new holy trinity. The president, the party, and very much the junior member, God. So it's a strange time, really, for the Vatican to sign a deal merging China's two Catholic churches. Perhaps you could just quickly explain that distinction. There's the official Chinese Catholic Church, the Patriotic Church, as it's called, who are loyal to the state. And then there has been the underground church, which has been loyal to Rome since basically communism took over in China. And there's been an attempt to, to join those two together. The Vatican-China deal effectively has, in many people's view, and I would say my, my own, I wouldn't mind admitting it, is a betrayal, a grotesque betrayal of the, of the suffering of the underground church because they've been marked for all these years, for decades. The thing that has been their guiding symbol or sign has been loyalty to Rome because they're loyal to the Pope, not to bishops being appointed by the state. And it seems... In many ways, and they have said it, Cardinal Zen, a former Cardinal of Hong Kong, has said it, that they've been betrayed by the, the, the one, as it were, they were most loyal to, the Pope. Um, so it's a very tragic situation, and it seems to be a repeat of the failed Vatican policy of Ostpolitik, which went from the late 40s, as it were, to the time of John Paul II, which was an attempt to make peace with communist authorities to allow some freedom for the church. However... John Paul, having lived under it, 
noticeably immediately crushed at the moment he was made Pope in, in 1978. And wherever that succeeded, in inverted commas, where it succeeded, the church was invariably weakened. For example, in Hungary, the church, although the Hungarians now are doing wonderful things to help persecuted Christians, the church was terribly compromised and weakened. Whereas, for example, in Poland, it wasn't. So why you would reintroduce a policy that failed so miserably is beyond comprehension. I couldn't agree more, but I'm wondering how many people in the West are interested in comprehending what's happening to Christians in the countries we've talked about, which are only part of the worldwide epidemic of persecution. You don't read about it unless you go searching for it. It's reported that it's the sort of thing the deputy foreign editor tacks onto his news list in morning conference. Oh, yeah, and there's some trouble in Nigeria, apparently. Christian women being raped. I think we can get some agency copy. But that sort of lazy indifference pales in comparison with, it seems to me, the active indifference, if that makes sense, of leading liberal commentators and some conservative ones as well. Do you agree? For many people in Western intelligentsia, you could say, in terms of academia, in terms of the press, Christianity, orthodox Christianity, is, if not the enemy, there's certainly a a contempt and even an anger. And it's mainly to do with the church's teaching on sexual ethics. I think that's fairly obvious. It's not, again, an original thought. And so it's a weird thing that in some ways, I think some people in the media, for example, almost think, well, they deserve it, which is an awful thing to say. And in fact, I won't name who it is, but a very senior figure in the media actually basically said that to me when I was discussing the persecution of Christians in in Syria, for example. This person actually pretty much said to me, well, they, they got what was coming to them. Archbishop Chaput of Philadelphia, who's just about to retire, one of the the strongest and and most admirable figures in the U.S. Catholic Church, wrote a book several years ago called Render Unto Caesar, using Jesus's words. And at one point in the book, I remember he said, very powerfully, he said, many Christians naively believe that Well, people are morally neutral towards us in that world of academia, intelligentsia, the media. He said, and these were his words, he said, they hate us. They hate us. Now, you can argue with that. Of course, not all of the people in that world hate us. But there are some who have positions of great power who do really, if not hate us, have a a dripping contempt towards authentic Orthodox Christians. They have no problems with Christians having helter-skelters in cathedrals and in crazy golf, because that's perfect, I mean, because it's a nonsense Christianity. But an authentic Christian who's suffering for their faith, who's being imprisoned for their faith, I think there are many people who would say, oh, well, tough. And we can't blame it on animosity towards the Catholic Church because they're equally indifferent to the sufferings of Orthodox or the very savage persecution of Protestants, especially Pentecostal Christians. I'm a Catholic, Catholic priest, but there is, Pope Francis, one of his phrases, which is really rather beautiful and true, is he's talked about the ecumenism of blood. I remember when I was in Iraq one time, I was speaking to the Archbishop of Mosul, the Syriac Orthodox Archbishop of Mosul had been driven out by ISIS. And I asked, how are the Syriac Orthodox doing? And he put his finger up and said, stop, 
I don't speak about the Syriac Orthodox. He said, we speak about all Christians together. We're all one. Our Orthodox brothers and sisters are suffering. Our evangelical brothers and sisters are suffering, especially again in China. Some of the house churches, which are huge, some of them enormous, but they're suffering and they don't have the representation because we obviously have a hierarchy. We have an authority figure that can sometimes speak up for suffering Christians. Orthodox have the same, but because there's no worldwide leader, as it were, of evangelical church. Many of these Christians are suffering. We know, for example, in the most awful place probably on earth is North Korea. The Christians who are suffering there terribly. When you read some of those accounts, it's mind-boggling. So all over the world where the church is being persecuted, Christ himself is being persecuted, which is why it's astonishing that there's been so much silence from the official church. Our brothers and sisters in Judaism, the Jewish people, have I've heard it said, and many others have heard it said, that um, if this was happening to Jews, the leaders of the Jewish community would be day and night making this a huge political issue. But for Christians, again, pretty much silence, pretty much keeping quiet. It's very peculiar. It's worth pointing out that Jewish leaders have been outspoken in their condemnation of violence against Christians. For example, former chief rabbi Lord Sachs told the House of Lords that the persecution of Christians throughout much of the Middle East, sub-Saharan Africa and Asia and elsewhere is one of the crimes against humanity of our time and I'm appalled at the lack of protest it has evoked. It's been a, a wonderful thing, but unfortunately it's come out of tragedy because the Jewish community, having suffered so terribly, having seen what genocide is and leads to, are speaking up for Christians where Christians are being persecuted. It's, it's been described as genocide in certain parts of the Middle East where there's been an attempt to wipe out Christian communities. And I also would say, let's not, we're speaking mainly about Christians, but I can't because I have such a concern about Iraq and Syria. We mustn't forget the Yazidi community. The Yazidis have been so terribly persecuted, not Christians, not Muslims, a unique religion, um, have been treated so horrendously and still are suffering immensely. No one seems to care that 3,000 Yazidi women and girls are still in captivity. That's a scandal. And that's also a scandal that Christians aren't doing enough to speak up for that. Going back to the shared experience of Christians and Jews, they do, of course, have a common enemy, radical Islam. Let's put it this way. We can say the large rise in anti-Semitic attacks, for example, in France can clearly be linked statistically. It's a statistical fact with the large increase in the Muslim community. Mo most, if not all, but most anti-Semitic attacks in France in recent years have been from the Islamic community. We know, of course, that most Muslims don't believe in violence. They don't would not uh, sanction this kind of attack. But radical Islam, the kind of uh, Salafist, the Wahhabist doctrines that are being preached in many mosques and madrasas, this is feeding that violent strain of Islam. It's easy to say Islam is a religion of peace. I think Islam is a religion of choice. It can be peaceful or violent. It would be easy to draw a veil over this, but Cardinal Scola, the former Archbishop of Milan, he went to Iraq actually very early in 2015, bravely, when ISIS was very close to Erbil. And Cardinal Scola said that when we speak about the persecution of Christians, there must be two things in your mind always. You must speak with complete transparency and absolute honesty. 
And I think those two things should always be part of our conversation when we discuss persecution of any religious minority. Sometimes, certainly, complete honesty will involve saying things that are difficult to hear. Uh, and transparency as well. Facts speak for themselves. It's not about prejudice. It's not about hate speech. It's not about any kind of phobia. All the Christians, for example, that I've met in my travels who've been persecuted want to live in peace. Well, I'm sure they do, but Christians can be the agents of persecution as well as its victims. People always bring up the Crusades. Well, that was many, many hundreds of years ago. But it's certainly true that Christians are capable of violence, uh, terrible violence. We think, for example, of the Yugoslav Wars, the Balkan Wars, the Serbs and the Croats, the terrible things that were done by Christians or people who claimed to be Christian. So that's important. But also that's sometimes an easy thing for people to, to jump to. Uh, I remember as well, I have to say it, I was aggrieved, I was hurt when not long after Father Jacques Hamel, that wonderful priest in Normandy we remember four years ago, who was beheaded during Mass, Pope Francis was questioned on the plane not long after that and immediately began to speak about Christian violence. And that was a little disturbing because there aren't many Christians running into mosques beheading imams, but there are more acts of violence against Christians. So um, it's a matter of balance. Complete honesty and transparency is about balance. And on balance, yes, Christians commit and do awful things. But proportionately, at least at the moment in the world, Christians are suffering more than any other group. It's claimed that 80%, 80% of victims of religious persecution in the world are Christians. Statistically, most of the persecution in the world against religious minorities is against Christians. And also it's been said that it's the worst persecution since the first centuries of the church. It's actually worse than the first centuries of the church because there are more Christians. Once again, it's, it's a statistical fact that may change, who knows, in the future. But that is why it is essential that Christian leaders, the Archbishop of Erbil, Archbishop Warder, a bill in Iraq who looked after so many thousands and thousands of Christians who were driven out by ISIS was here in the United Kingdom recently. And he very strongly criticized Christian leaders, not just here in the United Kingdom, but also I think in the United States, criticized church leaders for not speaking out enough about the persecution. And I think he actually said that it was because of political correctness. They're fearful of all that we've been talking about, that one might be labelled Islamophobic or a hate speaker of some kind. No, it's about telling the truth. This is reality. Well, we've been talking about the cultural hostility to Orthodox Christianity among Western liberals. But surely there's a related problem, hard to disentangle from it, which is that educated people generally including the highly educated segment of the population who run government departments in the West, know almost nothing about religion beyond the sort of multi-faith witterings you hear on Thought for the Day. The fact is that, to a degree no one expected 50 years ago, societies around the world are being reshaped by religious demography, religious ideas, often the sort of conservative religious ideas which are incomprehensible to secular liberals. I mean, forget the Islamic world. You can't hope to understand modern Israel, for example, unless you understand ultra-Orthodox Judaism. 
And this ignorance helps explain the scandalous indifference of, say, the European Union to religious conflict, which is often characterised as ethnic conflict, which is something the Western elites can get their heads around because they're much more comfortable talking about ethnicity than faith. Yes, there is what I would call a religious illiteracy. I remember a friend of mine, Dr. Andrew Bennett, who was the first ambassador for religious freedom in Canada under the Harper government. He was the first and only ambassador for religious freedom because when the Trudeau government took over, they abolished his office. And I think the new office is not called the Office of Religious Freedom. It's called the Diversity Office or something like that. But I remember Dr. Bennett telling me that one of his jobs was to speak to new diplomats before they were sent to their missions because he said, there was a gap in their education and their general knowledge to do with religion. They could be highly trained young men and women, and yet they had a, a missing link, which was a religious sensibility. And I think, for example, the recent review uh, here in, the, in Britain with the, the Foreign Office review done by the Bishop of Truro also highlights that, that our diplomats need to have a good working knowledge, certainly of the, the religion of the place they're being sent to, but also it's a mark of a cultured person, I think, to have some knowledge of all religions, but certainly one's own country's religion. I think the danger is that this sort of religious illiteracy then translates into some kind of practice, for example, the inability to allow Christian bishops, nuns, to get visas to come for visits to England, because we've heard before the, the kind of reasons given indicate beautifully, horrifically, religious illiteracy. For example, they would say to a sister, a religious sister, well, there's no evidence of you having a bank account. Well, of course, anyone with a brain who knows anything about religious orders knows that nuns don't have bank accounts. Their order looks after them. For example, the Archbishop of Mosul, again, this same archbishop, who was refused a visa to come to England, was told, well, we have no belief that you'll return. Is the archbishop representing 5,000 people? Of course he's going to return. These are just some small examples of that sort of religious illiteracy. It's ignorance, which then can translate into problematic situations. Well, there's some evidence that the Foreign Office is getting its act together. Jeremy Hunt commissioned this impressively thorough report by Philip Mount Stephen, the Bishop of Truro, on the global persecution of Christians. And it says, the sense of misguided political correctness that has stopped us standing up for Christians overseas must end. And it acknowledges that there's a problem with the religious literacy of Foreign Office staff and says they must be educated. Boris Johnson says he'll implement it. Well, we'll see. So that's very encouraging. But you and I, Father Ben, were present earlier this year at a one-day conference on the subject of the persecution of Christians, organised by the Danube Institute and, and the New Culture Forum, at which Lord Alton of Liverpool, David Alton, probably the world's greatest advocate for persecuted Christians, tore into the Department for International Development, DFID, quite separate from the Foreign Office, which pours money into the bank accounts of governments that sponsor or tolerate the killing and harassment of Christians, and really doesn't care. DFID has been colonised, if you like, by the multicultural secular left, and Tory governments have never had the guts to do anything about it. It would appear, perhaps, that... We're not talking about religious illiteracy. 
there seems to be some sort of ideological background to some of the decisions that Diffid make. They claim to be religion blind in terms of aiding particular groups. Well, if one religious group is suffering, you can't be religiously blind to that group. Is there an, some sort of ideological basis for this as well? One can say some of the decisions are, are, are worrying. Well, it must be particularly frustrating for you because unlike Diffid, you know and care about communities that are being very efficiently destroyed because of their faith. Perhaps you could just tell us something about your latest visit to the Middle East. I was just in Iraq at the beginning of July. I first went to Iraq early in 2015, so I've been multiple times. And things are in some ways improving. Some Christians have moved back to their towns where ISIS drove them out in 2015. But there's still great insecurity. I was in Mosul, which is still destroyed, basically completely. All the churches are destroyed. One church has been reopened. There's only one priest and he's not really even truly resident. He's only there some days a week. So the Christians are feeling still very nervous. There are new worries because of the Shia militias who are, as it were, have taken over from ISIS. ISIS is still there, of course. It's a myth that ISIS has been defeated. The caliphate, the physical caliphate was defeated. ISIS just crept back into the shadows and they have many sleeper cells. There are still attacks going on. The ideology is still very strong. But the new danger for Christians is the advance of the Shia militias being backed by Iran, really controlling the Nineveh plain where most of the Christians lived for 2,000 years and where they fled from to Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan. So things are very, very difficult. And um, what the Christians need more than anything else, apart from jobs, which is what my little charity tries to help with, is security. And they are once again in the middle between the big powers and no one really seems to worry too much about taking care of them. They're, they're small. Father Ben, thank you very much for explaining some of the horrendous problems faced by Christians around the world. It's clear that this is a global epidemic of persecution and that we don't know enough about it. So I'm glad to say that Benedict Keeley has agreed to appear regularly on the Holy Smoke podcast in his capacity as founder of Nazarene.org, a charity that doesn't mince words. In order to update us on the harassment of all Christians, Protestants, Catholic, Orthodox, and also non-Christian believers whose human rights are being trampled on while the media look the other way. There'll be short segments rather than whole episodes but essential listening. So please subscribe to this podcast, Holy Smoke, and The Spectator's other fantastic podcasts.